Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is RCR Reality Check Radio, the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. Let's have some thoughts on the story of the day. Doctors say it is medically indefensible. I would say it's morally indefensible as well. This is the Health New Zealand Directive that surgeons must consider a patient's ethnicity when deciding who should get an operation first. Uh, This is all based on the often quoted line that Maori and Pacific Islanders have less access to health services and have worse health outcomes. One surgeon in Auckland, though, was cut straight to the chase. Quote, it must be their medical condition that establishes the urgency of the treatment, unquote. Now, you would have thought that in a country like New Zealand, which has always prided itself on equality of opportunity, that would be a given. But actual evidence that Maori and Pacific Islanders have worse health outcomes because of their ethnicity doesn't exist, you know. Last year, the New Zealand Initiative asked the Ministry of Health for evidence to back up Jacinda Ardern's famous line in a Waitangi Day speech, where she said, Maori have worse health outcomes because they are Maori. The ministry could actually provide no evidence of that. In fact, the ministry listed these factors as determining how healthy or otherwise you are. 40% is your income and education. 10% your housing quality. 30% personal lifestyle choices like diet and whether you smoke or not and whether you actually go to the doctor. And 20% the quality of the healthcare sector. Yes, Maori have poorer health outcomes, but there is no evidence that just being Maori means a poorer health outcome. But you can't tell this government that their obsession with identity above everything else means this awful policy is sadly there for all of us to see. Gee, there was an absolutely intriguing battle for the nation's eyes and ears at 7.30 last night. On Sky Sport, they were naming the All Black team for the year. On TV1, a former All Black was laying bare his life after rugby, a life of dementia, alcoholism and depression. There could not have been a more stark contrast. On one channel, a 22-year-old rising star prop forward named Tamaiti Williams was named in the All Blacks for the first time. On the other channel, Carl Heyman, the former star prop forward, once the world's highest paid rugby player, now living alone after two broken relationships, trying to stay off the bottle, and most likely suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, the degenerative brain condition affecting so many former rugby and American football players. Carl Heyman knows there is no cure for it. The best he can hope for is to stay off the booze, Keep fit by setting goals like swimming this upcoming charity relay across the English Channel and keeping an optimistic outlook for other opportunities in his life. Meanwhile, you hope that young Tamaiti Williams is getting the appropriate advice on technique to ensure he doesn't suffer the dreadful brain damage that Carl Heyman has endured 
during his long rugby career. Rugby is an integral part of New Zealand life, we know that. Being an all-black gives you a status in this country, for better, for worse. But the contrast between the new prop, the promising young player, and the old one on TV last night is a warning that with that status comes a risk of a most unpleasant future. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, if you're an opposition political party, you couldn't have picked a better time to launch a campaign on law and order and gangs than this past weekend, could you? With the memories of Oportiki fresh in the minds of the voters, the National Party's climbed on the bandwagon with a policy that essentially says gang members will be sentenced harder for crimes than non-gang members. Now, the sentiment is good, but is that actually legal? Unless you actually designate gangs as illegal organisations, it seems like rather a basic breach of human rights to be instructing judges to give a harsher sentence to a gang member than to somebody who has committed exactly the same offence but who is not a gang member. And before you say what a soppy, wet liberal I must be for espousing that, I'm just being consistent in allowing everyone basic human rights, one of which is freedom of association. The key is not necessarily to make gang membership an aggravating factor when sentencing, but to make more arrests and do more prosecuting in the first place for gang members' regular intimidation of the public and their brazen breaking of traffic rules. But gee, the numbers don't look great, do they? According to Christopher Luxon, there are now 8,900 gang members in the country. That's a rise of 3,500 since Labour came to power in 2017. And to combat them, there are just 10,700 frontline police officers. In five police districts, there are actually more gang members than cops. But despite all the apologies and excuses for a portiki last week, the reality is the mongrel mob took over that town last week, and that must never be allowed to happen anywhere in this country ever again. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, some of your feedback, which has come into inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is from Lee, who says, Peter, as an ex-police sergeant, my take is the cops have become too woke. They lack the toughness to take positive action, as they are too worried about IPCA complaints, Independent Police Conduct Authority complaints. Uh, This will only get worse until we return to some good old-fashioned values in our communities, and especially our once respected police force. Thank you, Lee. Couldn't agree more. Uh, This from Alan in Taranaki. Uh, Peter Williams, you are right about media bias. The rewriting of stories has been going on for decades in journalism. We need to back Winston's call for a royal commission. Please urge your listeners to sign the New Zealand First Petition. All right, thank you, Alan. Uh, Tracy in Hobsonville is very complimentary. So happy you are on RCR. You are awesome. Great song choices too. Uh, Thank you, Tracy. They're not my choices. They're actually Paul Brennan's. Uh, And this from Sandy. Love this show. I sit and listen at lunchtime. You guys are the best. That's very nice of you to say so, Sandy. Yes, Paul Brennan is the one who comes up with the great music mix, and I thank him for that. 
Uh, your, uh, your feedback is most welcome. Uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Our text number is 2057. Some more of your feedback later this afternoon. Now, I don't think there were many tears shed when Meng Foon announced his resignation as the Race Relations Commissioner on Friday. As far as conflicts of interest go, uh, this was a doozy, a pretty major one. He was director of a company that received $2 million in government money for building emergency accommodation. Now, he says he didn't receive any of that money directly, which is probably true, but surely he would get some recompense as a director of the company involved. But either way, the conflict was glaringly obvious after the Human Rights Commission produced a report on emergency housing which Meng Foon had contributed to. Like most of these Human Rights and Race Relations Commissioners, he was way too inconsistent with his declarations anyway when he was in the job. His complete inability to see racism in any other direction apart from white on brown made him unsuitable to carry on in the job. How he could not call out the Maori party when they declared that Maori are genetically superior to other races is beyond me. That is racism of the highest order. It doesn't come more racist than that. Or how he didn't find that poet's so-called art about looking to F up descendants of James Cook racist is also an insult to New Zealanders of all ethnic backgrounds. So frankly, good riddance, Mr Meng Foon. Your term in the Wellington bureaucracy will not be remembered fondly by many people. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, down in my part of the world, the Otago Daily Times this past Saturday, I ran a nice story about the opening of a new swimming pool in Mosgiel, just out of Dunedin. It sounds like a great community project. It's happened despite some opposition to it early on. The community fundraised, the Dunedin City Council put in a decent chunk of money, which of course is the job of local authorities, to help build community facilities. The pool has a Maori name, of course, because that's what we do these days, don't we? Uh, but can you imagine the people of Mosgiel ever saying, let's go for a swim at Tapuna or Whakaehu? Of course not. It, um, it doesn't roll off the tongue like Moana Pool does, does it? Uh, which makes the idea of giving it a Maori name rather pointless. It will be known, I'm sure, as the Mosgiel Pool. But after the nice story on the struggle to get the pool named uh, and built comes a piece of, frankly, absolute bollocks about the origins of this long-winded name that nobody will use. It is pure and simple hocus-pocus nonsense mythology which no logical thinking person will believe or indulge in for a minute. The moment you try to spin a yarn about a swimming pool getting its name from a pet tanifa named Matamata, who later carved out Otago Harbour, you really have to wonder about what sort of nation we have become. Those who wish to indulge in the worship of mythical beings are most welcome to in the privacy of their own homes or their churches and cathedrals or synagogues and mosques and marae, but frankly, don't try to inflict made-up mythology on me and call it news. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, the credibility of the news media took another slamming over this past weekend 
with a major setting the record straight story about this young woman named Coralie Collins Annan, who has, it seems, a major Walter Mitty complex. She's a dreamer. She makes stuff up. Uh, She's posed as a lawyer, despite not finishing her law degree. And she's told a great story of redemption about being the daughter of a mongrel mob drug dealer, but escaped from all that to make something good in her life, Uh, which would have been a great yarn if it was true. It wasn't. Uh, Originally, the New Zealand Herald or the Herald on Sunday ran the story two weeks ago and obviously never did any background checks to see if it was all true. And that has bit them on the bum big time. And this only two days after Shane Curry, the former editor of the Herald and now a columnist on Media Matters for the newspaper, was reliving his horror about a rogue reporter who made up stories under his watch about 18 years ago. I remember that. Uh, That reporter's name, which Shane Curry never mentioned, by the way, was John Manukia. But all this has come after the Radio New Zealand saga and the sub-editing of Reuters stories to change the political narrative on them. The point is that newsrooms these days do not have the resources to check the work of reporters and producers. There is a tremendous amount of trust by management of those on the factory floor. But now we are seeing way too often mistakes big and small, mistakes and bias big and small in our media on a daily basis. Even yesterday, the stuff columnist Andrea Vance confused the Nelson MP Rachel Boyack with Dunedin MP and Cabinet Minister Rachel Brooking. I noticed that story straight away. Uh, To their credit, within an hour or two, it was corrected. But that sort of minor mistake is sloppy, And frankly, it's credibility decreasing. And the shambles around this Coralie Collins-Annan saga, frankly, is mind-boggling. Some more of your feedback now to inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is from the Van Uden family uh, who say, Peter, a little note to say a big thank you for the wonderful interview you did with Melissa Laby, who was our son's girlfriend uh, last week. As a family, we are very grateful for the opportunity to share a special story and we hope that it has given others strength and courage to shine on during these difficult times. It was a very healing process for Melissa to get those words out and we all feel a load has been lifted. Wishing you all the very best for a fantastic year ahead with Reality Check Radio. It's the best. Lest we forget, love conquers all. Thank you from Rachel Van Uden who has written that. On the same uh, theme, a text from Coral McIntosh, who said, loved the emotional ice skater. Thanks. Yes, that was a wonderful story about Melissa, wasn't it, who uh, had her ice skating career in Auckland just brought to an end because she wouldn't be vaccinated. She's gone to the Netherlands where they don't worry about things like that, and her career has thrived. And then this from Shelley. Uh, Such a delightful interview with the gentleman who was over 100 years old. It was a great way to finish off the week on a positive note. Uh, Thank you for taking the time and honouring this individual. That's from Shelley, who describes herself as a fan. That's nice, Shelley. Yes, Bruce Powell was uh, an absolutely enchanting gentleman. Uh, We talked to him on the show for an hour on Friday afternoon. 105 years of age and thinking and speaking and acting like a man, what, 35 years younger? Quite an extraordinary individual, uh, that gentleman living in Glenfield uh, in the North Shore, on the North Shore of Auckland. Thank you for that, Shelley. Uh, your correspondence is most welcome. Our text number 2057, 
My email address is inbox at realitycheck.radio. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio, the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. Uh, The news about the US presidential race in recent days has, of course, been about Donald Trump and his indictments and how they may or may not affect his chances of securing the Republican nomination. But there's a story to be told on the Democrat side too. Joe Biden is the incumbent and, of course, the favourite to be the candidate again, despite him being, well, being lots of things, too old among them, and possibly being a bit too touchy-feely too for a man of his age, witnessed that embrace with Eva Longoria over the weekend. But there are two other candidates lining up for the job on that side as well, Robert Kennedy Jr. and a woman named Marianne Williamson. Now, to say they are both long shots is as obvious as saying that the sun rises in the east, but there is some support for them there. A recent poll of polls put Biden on 42.5%, Kennedy on 16.8%, and Marianne Williamson on 6.8. The Democrats will have to run primaries anyway to confirm their candidate, and the usual form is for both parties to run televised debates with the candidates before the primary votes. But the Democrats, according to RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., are foregoing the debates and are just backing Joe Biden. As Kennedy says, this is the Democratic Party being anti-democratic. And that view has some support. According to Newsweek magazine, 79% of voters who supported Biden in 2020 believe the Democrats should hold televised debate, uh, debates rather before the primaries next year. Robert Kennedy himself has just been on a three-hour podcast with Joe Rogan. Now, the average number of downloads for a Joe Rogan podcast is 11 million. So Kennedy is getting his message out there anyway. It's one a lot of people in America don't want to hear because of his views on the pharmaceutical companies. But as America gets sicker by the year, maybe he will get some cut through. The party machine is likely to stop him. And his own medical condition, which affects his voice so much it makes him sound like a sick man, I won't help either. So for that reason, I cannot see RFK Jr. making much headway in the primaries. But I tell you what, he will land a few punches along the way. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, Belfer is a little village in northern Southland with a primary school that usually has between 75 and 100 kids. It has five classes up to year six, what we used to call standard four. The biggest class is just 23 students, as well as five classroom teachers. There is a principal, a learning support coordinator, two teacher aides, an office administrator, a cleaner, a groundsman, and a pool maintenance person. So that's, according to the school's website, 13 staff, some of them are part-time, admittedly, to run a school of, at most, 100 kids. All of them, apart from the groundsman, are female. But the principal is leaving after eight years at the school, citing burnout. The pressure was taking a toll on her physical and mental health, she said. Maybe she couldn't delegate. Because, you see, I find some of her comments about why she's leaving kind of questionable. She says she had to worry about weeds in the concrete and the fire extinguishers. Really? 
there were problems with pest removal, boiler maintenance, and the torque on the school bus wheels. Um, those are not the principal's problems. Uh, there is a groundsman on the staff list. Isn't he the one to worry about all that stuff? Anyway, this principal, Louise Stevenson, has quit to do some other kind of teaching, but remarkably, Belfer hasn't been able to find a principal to take her place. What is the problem here? A job which pays more than 100000 a year and which is a management role with no classroom teaching involved can't attract an ambitious person to a prosperous rural community. Is that just an indication of the teaching profession these days? Look, I'm the son of a primary school principal in a Southland village, albeit 60 years ago. I just find, and Dad had to do all that stuff as well, but it didn't seem to be a problem for him. But I just find the lack of ambition to be a school leader these days quite extraordinary. Now, there are many in the current government who dismiss the New Zealand initiative as a bunch of right-wingers who we shouldn't pay too much attention to. Yet in their group are some of the best thinkers in the country who are looking to address the country's problems with a focus on common sense and on history. Uh, those are the features of the initiative's latest work on the country's infrastructure. That is, our transport networks, our schools, our hospitals, and the facilities we need to make the country a properly functioning first world nation. One of the New Zealand Initiative's research fellows, Matthew Birchall, estimates we need to spend over $200 billion to get us where we should be. He says we need to do three things. Embrace the private sector, allow more local decision-making about what's needed, and not be afraid of building things. As Birchall says, the first bridge over the Waimakariri River north of Christchurch was a private project built by a pub owner in Kaiapoi. So why not more privately funded buildings for public use? After all, government departments already rent space in privately owned office buildings in Wellington. So why shouldn't schools and hospitals be built by the private sector, owned by someone else, and then rented back by the government? Then why not let local authorities decide what's needed in a particular area? Remember the Auckland Harbour Bridge Authority, which collected the tolls that paid for the bridge quickly? It was ring-fenced money. And why don't we want to build and develop anything anymore? I mean, just imagine if Julius Vogel had to deal with the RMA when he was building the country's railways back in the 19th century. We have laws which restrict development and building these days. We also have a mindset which slows it down as well. A country has a gloomy future if it doesn't think long-term the way our road, railway and hydro dam builders thought in the 19th and early 20th centuries. We don't have those visionaries anymore. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Thank you for your company on the Peter Williams Afternoon Show here on RCR. I look forward to talking with you again on Wednesday when, among other things, we will talk golf with Phil Tautarangi as we look back on the US Open. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show 
on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.